Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Joe, what was your favorite dinosaur when you were a child? That is an impossible question to answer. <laughs> impossible. You know, I think my favorite was actually the fake velociraptors from Jurassic Park, oh. which are, you know, the velociraptors in Jurassic Park are not really much like real velociraptors. They're more For a like, number of reasons. Yes. Uh, they're, they're probably closer to the dinosaur Deinonychus, mm-hmm. right? But uh, I, I was really into them. As far as real dinosaurs go, uh, you know, your Triceratops is a fan favorite. It seems kind of like the, the workhorse protagonist of your dinosaur paleo art scene where <laughs> you've got a predator attacking and a Triceratops defending and volcanoes erupting in the background. So it always made the Triceratops look like the good guy, like the, the good one, while there was a ferocious Tyrannosaur. Uh, it's also, I don't know, predators are fun. It, it's hard to turn down a Tyrannosaur. Well, I, I like your point about it being impossible to pick a favorite because ultimately – for a child, dinosaurs are, are less a roster of prehistoric creatures or, um, or a tree of prehistoric creatures. They're, they're more a pantheon. Mm-hmm. You know, they have different energies to them. They have different roles. And you have to sort of love them all because they all embody this, this sort of wild nature that I think the, the child, more than any of us, it, certainly more, I mean more than us adults, is in touch with. Well, yeah, they, they do have a character. Like I was saying, the Triceratops very much has this kind of uh, straightforward, good-hearted, working-class hero kind of vibe. Yeah. And the, the Deinonychus or the Velociraptor, they're kind of sneaky, aren't they? Then how would you classify the star of today's episode, the mighty Stegosaurus? Good-natured, dim-witted sidekick. From the <laughs> sidekick? <laughs> yeah, okay. you know, sidekick, not psychic. Okay. But sidekick. It... No, like the character – this has got to be an archetype in some movies. Like the, the, the character who's on the good side, who's friends with the protagonist, who's maybe not too bright and like has some malapropisms. Hmm. Okay. But I could also easily see the Stegosaurus taking the central dim-witted strong hero role of, say, a like a, a Hercules or a, or a Samson. A Conan. Know? A Conan, yeah. Oh, that, I've never thought about it that way. But the tiny-headed Stegosaurus very much could be the Conan the Barbarian of the prehistoric world. You know, like, Krom, I've never prayed to you before. I have no <laughs> tongue for it. But if you let me thagomize my enemies. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I mean, he's, he's got the armor, he's got the muscles, and he's got that awesome weapon that he swings around. I want to run some 100% true dinosaur facts by you today because we are going to be talking about some some dinosaur pseudoscience. Right. In the in the, the probably the second half of the episode for sure. Yeah, so these are all 100% true facts I'm about to state. It can be proved that dinosaurs are still alive today. They exist on every continent on the Earth. There are literally even millions of dinosaurs currently living in Antarctica. Thousands of people, or maybe millions of people for all I know, actually even keep dinosaurs as pets. You might not have ever known about this. But they keep dinosaurs as pets in cages, and sometimes they can even train these dinosaurs to speak modern languages and repeat phrases like, Polly want a cracker. <laughs> Those statements, again, all 100% true. And certainly you can, you can take them all in kind of a dinotopia uh, spirit uh, where we imagine this fantastic world full of uh, Antarctic dinosaurs and, and pet velociraptors. But, uh, but, but this, is, this is all uh, a much more mundane uh, fact of our reality. Right. I'm actually being pedantic and obnoxious because <laughs> these are all true facts because birds are dinosaurs. Modern birds are biologically considered dinosaurs in terms of phylogenetic analysis. Mm -hmm. Uh, So hate me if you want. But it's true. And because we're going to be talking about the concept of modern or recent dinosaurs today and some pseudoscientific beliefs associated with that, I have to say as a precaution against getting a lot of potential pedantic emails, I'll go ahead and be pedantic for you. When we talk about dinosaurs in this episode, we're talking about the classic kind, the non-avian dinosaurs, the last of which went extinct at the end of the Cretaceous period about 66 million years ago. But modern-day birds are the descendants of the only dinosaurs that survived this horrible mass extinction in which about three-quarters of Earth's plant and animal species suddenly disappeared. Those dinosaurs that survived became birds and thus birds of today are dinosaurs. Yeah, so when someone says, hey, I wonder what, 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 would, what it would have been like if uh, dinosaurs had survived in the modern times. They did. They did. Behold, here they are. 
dinosaurs poop on your car. It's just true. <laughs> they build nests in your shed. They fly into your Home Depot and eat bird seed out of the home and garden section. Yeah, there's a dinosaur stuck in the Home Depot <laughs> going back and forth between the aisles. My cat is out in the backyard hunting dinosaurs. <laughs> And this is all fun to say for multiple reasons, mainly maybe because we all love us some Flintstones, right? Where humans yeah. and dinosaurs, they exist at the same time and dinosaurs are brutally enslaved to serve as household appliances. <laughs> so you've got a dinosaur garbage disposal. Is there a dinosaur TV? Do they just watch a dinosaur acting out TV shows oh, or something? I, I don't remember. I feel like they probably did have a TV, but I, I can't, I can't in instantly picture it in my head. Uh, I think even most elementary school children these days are aware that humans and dinosaurs, the non-avian dinosaurs, actually never existed at the same time. That, that's like something that was maybe a little bit blurrier when I was a kid, but mm -hmm. I think that's generally made clear to children today. Yeah, I, I, my, my son has no doubt about it. I mean, part of it, I think, is because he watches a lot of dinosaur trains. So mm -hmm. it, it might be possible then that dinosaurs spoke and had a, a, a rail system that was able to uh, <laughs> travel back and forth uh, in dinosaur history, but mm. they, they certainly did not live alongside humans. Right. So as we were just saying, the non-avian dinosaurs all went extinct before or during the Cretaceous-Paleogene extinction event, sometimes known as the KPG or the KT extinction, about 66 million years ago. And human beings have existed for far less than a million years. If you want to get more specific than that, there, there are actually some interesting questions there. Like it can prove difficult to say exactly when Homo sapiens appeared because, of course, the transition from earlier species of bipedal hominids to the anatomically modern human didn't happen overnight. But our best guess is that Homo sapiens first emerged in Africa roughly 200,000 to 300,000 years ago, roughly. And that's a difference of about 65 million years or so. It's a big difference, right? It's yeah. not like you could fudge the numbers a little bit one way or another and say maybe there's a little bit of overlap. Like it's a big enough difference that there's no way to do that. Yeah. Based on all the evidence available to us, there is pretty much zero chance of human interaction with non-avian dinosaurs. So what are we to make of stories and, and little bits of art and things like that that people sometimes present to say, no, no, no. You're wrong. Humans have seen living dinosaurs, and here's the proof. Yeah, and as the title of this episode uh, suggests, uh, one bit of proof that we're um, discussing here today, but also using as just an excuse to talk about the Stegosaurus, is this idea that there is a 12th century carving in modern-day Cambodia of a Stegosaurus. Uh, again, fossils of which were not officially discovered until 1877 during the so-called Bone Wars in North America. So that is the evidence that is uh, presented. Um, we're not buying it, but we will discuss it a little bit later in the show. Right. So before we get to the 12th century Cambodian carving of a supposed stegosaurus, we should look at the stegosaurus itself, this powerful conan of the prehistoric world, this fascinating old herbivore with its plates and its spikes and its tiny little head. <laughs> I want to know all about it, Robert. Let's go in. All right. Well, uh, like I said earlier, stegosaurus was certainly one of my favorites as a, as a child. And uh, my son, by the way, he likes the stegosaurus, but he actually prefers the kentrosaurus which is a smaller contemporary from East Africa. Oh, yeah. yeah I believe, is, as far as I know, that's the only one that was ever found in Africa, right? I believe so, yeah. So this one, if, if you're unfamiliar with the with what this specimen probably looked like, uh, the illustrations and the, the fossil uh, reconstructions tend to show it with uh, typical bony plates roughly halfway down its back, and then it has spikes. So it looks like a cross between uh, a proper stegosaurus and a pincushion. <laughs> But now I should say that even though the Kentrosaurus was smaller, it was still 16 feet or 5 meters long, which is still pretty enormous. Yeah. Uh, a proper Stegosaurus, Stegosaurus ungulatus, would have reached 30 feet or 9 meters in length and would have weighed somewhere in the neighborhood of 5.3 to 7 tons. So this was a, an herbivore, and it lived in what is now North America during the late Jurassic, so uh, roughly 163 to 145 million years ago. Carnegie Quarry at the U.S. Dinosaur National Monument is, a, is one of the places where you'll find uh, a wealth of Stegosaurus fossils. In fact, I was reading where um, one prominent uh, paleontologist had even complained at one point that the Stegosaurus fossils were in the way of the sauropod fossils that he wanted to, <laughs> uh, to, to fully uh, examine. Oh, like, can we get a 
somebody in here to sweep all these stegosaurs out of the way? Yeah, we just have uh, we have uh, nuisance stegosauruses uh, here. <laughs> so uh, stegosaurians were part of a branch of dinosaurs that were the uh, ornithischians, right? Now, what does that mean, Robert? Bird hip dinosaurs. Bird hip. So they're sometimes classified in terms of the orientations of their hip bones. Right. Now, it does not mean slender uh, hips or slender thighs exactly. Because uh, if you've looked at Stegosaurus, its its thighs are enormous. It has this, yeah. these enormous hind legs. It's a meat on the bones. Yes. Now, unlike their uh, ornithopod relatives, such as iguanodons and uh, the duck-billed dinosaurs, uh, they they couldn't run on their hind legs. Uh, their hind legs were far larger than their front legs, uh, meaning that they, these creatures actually sloped forward uh, with their hips uh, higher than the rest of their body. It's kind of leaning down. Yeah. Oh, and they also had tall spines at the base of the tail that probably helped anchor powerful muscles uh, that helped it actually lift its forelegs up off the ground to aid in feeding. So while it, while it couldn't run on its uh, hind legs, it uh, it could probably lift itself up and, uh, you know, pull some branches down, that sort of thing. And those spikes on the back of the stegosaurus tail have a special name, right? Oh, yes. Well, now, this is a, this is an informal name, but it is informal even among paleontologists. They, they'll use it. Yes. I, I've read that all paleontologists now call the spikes the... Thagomizer. The Thagomizer. Yeah, this is, uh, this is great because this is an ode to Gary Larson's Far Side cartoon, mm-hmm. uh, one, one in particular in which uh, you had a number of uh, cavemen or Neanderthals, you know, the typical Gary Larson Far Side cavemen. Always depicting dinosaurs and, uh, and cave-dwelling humans alongside each other. Right, and one is giving a presentation on the hindquarters of a stegosaurus, and he's saying, uh, now this end is called the Thagomizer after the late Thag Simmons. <laughs> And so yeah, now we call it the thagomizer, which feels appropriate because it looks like uh, an instrument for thagomizing something. The word thagomizer even fits so well with our Conan motif. You can imagine Conan saying it. Yeah, and again, you can also imagine Conan wearing some heavy armor into battle as well. Right. At least, you know, not so much that he covers all of the muscles, but, you know, just to strengthen him up a little bit. Okay. And indeed, the Stegosaurus uh, did have these very fascinating plates on its body. Right. And there's actually some interesting debate over what role those plates played. Right. Yeah. Because when you, I mean, one of the things about the Stegosaurus is you look at it and it, even even if it's an action bit of paleo art, you know, there's some sort of a battle going on, it is hard to really nail down what the plates are supposed to be doing. Right. I mean, the easy thing to say, which you've seen a stegosaur, it's got these plates poking up off of its back. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you could say, well, of course, they're armor, they're for protection. And there's no way to rule out that they might have played some role along those lines. But also, I mean, imagine a person running into battle with, like, sheets of steel sticking straight out from behind their back. Right. You I mean, generally, you'd want the plates more oriented along the surfaces of the skin to protect from attacks, right? Yeah. I mean, these things were, were big. They were kind of arrowhead-shaped, uh, were more than two feet or 60 centimeters high. And the, I mean, one of the reasons there's such confusion, even just about the placement of the plates, is that we have many well-preserved specimens of the Stegosaurus, but there's never been one where the plates are still attached to the skeleton. So there's been a, a lot of discussion over how they might be arranged. So the, the vertical arrangement tends to be the one that you see, the one that is accepted. Mm-hmm. Uh, even then, it's uncertain if we're looking at um, two parallel rows of these or if there's a zigzagging pattern down the creature's spine. I think the one-layered zigzag is the favored today. Is it now? Okay. I think. Now, there were paleontologists that argued that they were actually in or on the skin, more like armor plating. Uh, But again, the the popular theory now is that it's a vertical arrangement. But if they were to just be purely body armor, uh, it, it would seem to make more sense, at least to our our, our human minds, that they would be uh, uh, laid across its back to, like plate mail. Yeah, cover more of the body. Yeah. So they were likely covered in tough horn, uh, but some paleontologists have theorized that you would have a layer of thin skin that could have covered them as well, mm-hmm. and this would, allowed the, this would have allowed the place to serve as heat exchangers. And uh, then there's a, there are others who have theorized that it might have been brightly colored and used for mating purposes. 
There's actually a, a cool, fairly recent study to back this up. A 2015 Princeton study argued that Stegosaurus miotzi actually featured uh, a differing male and female plate arrangements. Hmm. And this would certainly back up uh, the mating theory and also provide some different interpretations of just uh, Stegosaurian plating in general. Uh, they also argued that this sort of sexual dimorphism could be widespread among non-avian dinos. I mean, it's possible that all three of these different theories are somehow involved, but but one can imagine uh, a scenario where some sort of what was originally armor plating becomes increasingly involved in mate selection and does just get out of control. So they're just they're sticking up, they're they're less protective, uh, they're they're brightly colored, uh, and then you know millions and millions of years later, a new species of super intelligent apes just has a hard time figuring out what it was all about. Now, when it comes to the tail of the Stegosaurus, right. there's there's a lot less doubt about what it was for. Yeah, it seems pretty clear that it was used for defense, right? Yeah, it, it, everyone's pretty certain that these were, were used just like the sort of medieval morning star weapon that it resembles, that the Stegosaurus would have, would have swung this thing around in battle to protect itself from carnivores. And one of the cool things is that we actually have some fossil evidence, fossil evidence of spike wounds on, uh, on, on Allosauruses uh, to back this up. Exactly. So the Allosaurus was a predator. Uh, that would have been around to prey on the Stegosaurus. Mm -hmm. And in 2014, there emerged a really awesome, fantastic example of this. So in 2014, the famous paleontologist Robert Backer, who, if you'll recall, he actually gets a name drop in Jurassic Park. You remember that? No, I don't. Uh, The kid, uh, Tim, who's uh, following around, Alan Grant, he's like, I read this other book by this guy named Backer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's him. (laughs) Spells his name like R. Scott Baker, but uh, but Robert Backer. Gotcha. So he announced a discovery in 2014 at the Geological Society of America that uh, the fossil remains of an Allosaurus, this predator, in a Wyoming museum showed signs of having been killed in combat with a Stegosaurus, specifically being spiked to death in the groin. Oh, man. Crotch thagomized to death. There you go. That, if that's not some, uh, some Conan the Barbarian uh, uh, behavior, I don't know what is. I know. So what's the evidence of this, right? The Allosaurus skeleton has this deep conical hole punctured right in its pubic bone. Can you imagine how strong a blow would have to be to punch a hole right through the bones of a massive prehistoric predator? Wow. Yeah, that's some serious punch. Yeah. So apparently this wound would have left shattered bone fragments and all kinds of dirt and contaminants in a deep wound like this. And then it appears what happened is the wound got infected. So Bacher says, quote, a massive infection ate away a baseball-sized sector of the bone. Probably this infection spread upwards into the soft tissue attached here, the thigh muscles and adjacent intestines and reproductive organs. Oh, man. And the wound, they, they are sure that it killed the allosaur because the wound doesn't show any signs of having healed over, which is usually a sign that the animal died from the wound or maybe just coincidentally died right after receiving it. But it probably died from this horrible wound, right? So Bakker's talking about the specific weaponized qualities of the thagomizer and the stegosaurus tail in general. And he says, quote, most dinosaur tails get stiffer toward the end, but the joints of a stegosaur tail look like a monkey's tail. Hmm. They were built for three-dimensional combat. And the way I've seen this explained was that Bakker's team says we often think about the combat behaviors of stegosaurs uh, as in like they can just sort of wave their tail back and forth like we see in cartoons, right? Right. I mean they probably would have been able to wave their tail back and forth. But Bakker and colleagues instead argue that the stegosaur was not limited to this motion but could make these powerful stabbing thrusts with its tail like we would with a spear or a sword. Oh, I love this. So, so it's, it's, it's not just this idea that it just has to wave it back and forth and it's just kind of a general don't approach me from the rear because there's there are spikes back there uh, but it's more of a, a strategic uh, weapon that it can use against the offender yeah it's almost like a spiked arm like it's got three dimensions of freedom of movement right so it, so if it gets uh, 
snuck up on by an Allosaurus. Allosaurus runs up on the Stegosaur from behind. The Stegosaur, it's not like has its tail pinned down now. It can go up and stab the Allosaur in the groin, and that's what happened here. I like how uh, Bakker reminds us that the Stegosaurus would not have kept its Thagomizer in sterile conditions. Right. <laughs> and it also kind of makes me think, oh, what if it what if it was quite the opposite? What if this thing was just nasty? Just it just it just dragged its Thagomizer through its own excrement. So it was just this this sharp, brutal, uh, just uh, feces uh, encrusted um, instrument of death that it would uh, that it would uh, weave back and forth at its enemies. Gross. Yeah. I mean, that that's great. That would have been a really devious weapon. I don't know if you could have really – I mean, when you think about it, could they have had a selection pressure for that if, like, it wouldn't immediately kill the Allosaur that's attacking it mm. but would kill it, like, within a few days from infection? I don't know. I don't know. And I mean, to, to his actual point, though, you would not have to have a feces-encrusted thagomizer to result in uh, in catastrophic infection. Exactly. Yeah. No, yeah. You'd stab a hole through the bones, leave a bunch of fragments, you get some dirt in there. Yeah. So uh, and in any case, even if it doesn't immediately kill the Allosaurus, it's going to wound it bad enough that the Stegosaurus is probably going to be able to get away, right? Yeah. Oh, uh, interesting side note. If you look at older illustrations of the Stegosaurus, uh, there'll often be extra spikes on the Thagomizer. Oh, yeah. Uh, now everyone tends to agree you're looking at four spikes, but you, you see older paintings where they have eight. Yeah, and in that paleo art, you also see the uh, the parallel arrangement of the vertical plates on the back instead of the the single line arrangement. Another side note about this find with the uh, the groin stab from the Thagomizer it also affects an interesting debate over the basic survival niche of theropod carnivores like Allosaurus. So you've got the theropods, you know, the, the Tyrannosaurus-type dinosaurs, the two-legged walking dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Um, these theropod predators, some have proposed that Allosaurus and Tyrannosaurus were actually scavengers primarily rather than active hunters. And this wound and others like it inflicted by herbivores on carnivores seems to me to be – Pretty good evidence that large theropod carnivores like Allosaurus were active hunters, right? Yeah, because why else are you going to thagomize somebody? Right. There's, there would be no reason for a Stegosaurus to jab an Allosaurus to death unless the Allosaurus was attacking it. Yeah, Stegosaurus is not going to walk up and be like, stop disrespecting the dead. Yeah. Because no. <laughs> the Stegosaurus doesn't, doesn't think like that. Right. And speaking of thinking, uh, the Stegosaurus had an extremely small head, yep. a mere 16 inches or 40 centimeters long. The brain, uh, it's often pointed out, would have been roughly the size of a walnut. I, I like this, but I also like, because that's an often cited fact, the paleontologist Kenneth Carpenter, who's director of the USU Eastern Prehistoric Museum in Utah, has said that despite the uh, despite the common comparison of the stegosaurus brain to the walnut, he makes an even more specific comparison, which is to say, quote, actually, its brain had the size and shape of a bent hot dog. <laughs> I really like this this uh, interpretation because it kind of implies that all the stegosaurians were, um, were, were, were deviants, you know? They had a real bent hot dog of a brain. All right. I think we should explore some facts and some controversies about that bent hot dog when we come back from a break. All right, we're back. So we were talking about the particularly low brain-to-body ratio that you would have found in uh, the Stegosaurians. Right. It's a a Krom worshiper. It's got a big weapon. It's got a tiny little head and a tiny, tiny little brain, often compared to a walnut, sort of like a bent hot dog in the words of one paleontologist. Why so small, though? Well, ultimately, if you're a walking tank, if you're a walking Jurassic tank, uh, how much thinking do you need to do, right? You're, you're essentially a grazing herbivore. Mm-hmm. Uh, if something a- attacks you, you fight back viciously with your thagomizer, but you're not engaging in, in probably a lot of uh, rich social behavior. You're not doing any pack hunting or anything of that uh, nature. You're not, you don't have a, a, like a diverse diet that you're having to, to deal with. Uh, so a lot of the behavioral reasons that you would have a, a more highly evolved um, uh, uh, brain are just not present in the Stegosaurus. Mm-hmm. I know some people throughout history, and we'll, we'll present counters to this in a minute, but some people throughout history have looked at the tiny brain and said, wow, that's so small. How could it even control its body, right? Would that <laughs> even have enough processing power to move its body parts around? Yeah, well, this would get into an, an interesting theory uh, that uh, – uh, that it, I understand it is less popular now, but the, the idea was that, well, the Stegosaurus had a second brain in its hips 
to control the movements of its hindquarters, uh, sort of like a rear steering wheel in a fire truck. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Now, of course, n- nobody was arguing that this would have been a true brain, but rather a cluster of nervous tissue. Uh, the idea of, say, a, a neural canal in the sacrum, and it just would have been a lot larger uh, in, the, in the Stegosaurus because the, the Stegosaurus has such large hindquarters. Yeah, a lot of bones, a lot of, a lot of space between the bones, a lot of meat on the bones. Right. So there's a lot of st- – yeah. So uh, as beautiful as the Stegosaur butt brain idea is, <laughs> uh, because it would be kind of beautiful to find a creature with a brain in its butt – Unfortunately, it looks like the evidence did not pan out for the butt-brain theory, and it's not accepted anymore. This hypothesis first came from the 19th century paleontologist Othniel Charles Marsh, who wrote in 1881 that the cavity for the expansion of the neural canal, which is what you were just mentioning, was a, quote, posterior brain case. And that's also a good insult to keep in your bank, (laughs) you know. Posterior brain case. I like it. We're getting them all. So it's like you call somebody a bent hot dog brain. You call somebody a posterior brain case. (laughs) Uh, But paleontologists do not believe this anymore, mainly because there's no evidence for it. And in fact, there's a pretty good reason for thinking that this cavity was for something else. And I found a a good, clear explanation of this in a blog post by a Western U paleontologist named Matt Waddell that clearly explains what's going on here. And funny enough, as a side note, in the, uh, the, the context of him mentioning this was complaining about being featured in a wildly inaccurate Science Channel documentary in 2009. Oh, I wonder what it was. What is it, like uh, Stegosaurians Walk Among Us? I don't remember <laughs> the name of it, but he's he's talking about how he claims that it misleadingly cut his interview to make it seem like he was advocating this outdated brain-butt hypothesis, mm-hmm. and he wasn't. So instead he writes that there were actually – two different things in the body of a stegosaur that get referred to as the sacrolumbar expansion, this cavity you're talking about. One is a swelling of the spinal cord around the pelvis, which is actually present in most vertebrates and is apparently there to control motor function, right? One of the weird things that a lot of people don't know is that it, it is thought that much of your body's motor function, like the less executively controlled things, sort of like automatic continuous motion, like say walking, just mm-hmm. walking, some of that doesn't come directly from the brain but is controlled by central locomotion function. Like there is a cluster of nervous tissue in the spinal cord that says legs keep walking unless something goes <laughs> wrong. Now, the other thing that potentially gets called a sacrolumbar expansion, this this cavity, is a real expansion, a cavity in the sacral vertebrae or it's kind of a gap in the bones back there. But it's not unique to the stegosaurus and paleontologists are pretty confident that it was not the site of a brain but actually the site of a glycogen body, which is a mass of glucose energy storage, which is still seen around the same location in bird skeletons today. And of course, birds are the descendants of the dinosaurs that had them. Yeah, I was reading about this this theory. Uh, this was actually in um... – uh, in an older dinosaur text from the, the 1980s, so I'm not sure uh, to what extent this holds up. But one possible interpretation was that this could have given the hindquarters an energy boost when it was, I guess, clobber in time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, obviously that is one thing to consider. I guess people don't know for sure yet. I mean, yeah. in the most recent stuff I've read, people don't know for sure what the glycogen body is for, even in modern birds. But uh, yeah, interesting mystery. Another side note if this discredited hypothesis had been true, like if there were a second brain in the stegosaurus butt, mm-hmm. what would the consciousness of an organism like that be like? If, if it was capable of being conscious, what would the consciousness of an organism with two separate brains connected by a single nervous system be like? Huh. Would it be a brain that has not two houses but three? Would you have a tricameral mind? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean like could you – I mean – Imagine it for a second. Would it be that you'd have two minds in the same body or would somehow one mind be split across the two different brains connected by nervous tissue? I guess I would tend towards the second, but I also can't help but but think about some of – I mean I can't help but think about Julian James and the, uh, the bicameral mind mm-hmm. interpretation where you have one – half speaking to the other. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, yeah, so I, I kind of jokingly mentioned the idea of a tricameral mind, but <laughs> yeah, you, it's, it's, one help, can't help but wonder, like, how would communication among these three regions of cognition, how would they be experienced as 
conscious thought. And of course, it's ridiculous. We're talking about this with a stegosaurus, right? Which is we're, we're multiple level <laughs> levels of speculation pretty far, down, pretty far from uh, from 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 modern consciousness. This creature, but uh, but no, it's it's a fascinating idea. It also makes me think of of uh, the various uh, models of um, of chakra in. Uh, in, in Eastern and New Age thought, mm -hmm. the idea that you have these different centers of cognition throughout the body. Oh, there's one, there's a sacral energy. one, right? Yeah, yeah. So maybe it would sort of be like that. We, huh. I mean, I can't help but 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 summon the, that uh, that idea when I'm trying to imagine uh, a brain in the butt. Okay, let's get back to the tail. Yes. Yeah, I mean, we're, 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 we're headed that way anyway. We're talking about the, the idea of a rear brain. Let's just head on all the way back to the Thagomizer. Uh, because here's a, here's a fun question that uh, I, don't, I don't think I'd really thought about this before, but it, it's, it's a pretty natural question to ask. Why don't modern vertebrates have weaponized tails like we see uh, with the Stegosaurians or with the Ankylosaurus, you know, the, the other kind of famous armored dinosaur. It's got uh, kind of a ball tail, right? Yeah, kind of like very blunt looking spikes, but you know, very much this enormous like dwarven warhammer of a tail. You, a little, even more conan maybe. Yeah, and then among uh, among uh, among mammals, prehistoric mammals, you had the, the glyphodonts, uh, which also had a, a weaponized tail. Oh, yeah. So you're saying like where are all the thagomizers today? Yeah, yeah, because you look around at our, our, our modern vertebrate organisms and you just do not see them. So a, a 2018 North Carolina State University study actually looked into this uh, because because th think about it. We have all of these creatures that have horns on their head, antlers on their head, and they're going around using these either offensively in some sort of a, a, a mating behavior against uh -huh. other males or they're using them defensively against predators. But that's up there where the brain is. Exactly. Like, that's the most uh, pivotal part of the of the organism. Why are they fighting with that? For a while now, I've been wanting to do a whole episode on this question of weaponized heads and why you would have so, so commonly evolved weaponized heads. You're putting the most important part of your body right out front as a weapon. Yeah, yeah. Why not use the tail? Uh, the tail that is, you know, in many organisms, this is a, a part that can be lost. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a part uh, that is brightly colored or or otherwise uh, ornamented so that it will attract the attention of predators and not the, the front end, not the, the business end of the organism. Yeah, so so what's the deal here? Well, it's indeed, it's indeed a topic we could probably go into in more depth. But in this case, the researchers, they looked for commonality among weapon-tailed four-legged organisms, both living and extinct. And uh, their guiding question was simply, like, why don't turtles have spiked tails? Okay. You know, it's a, it's a, they're big armored creatures in many cases. Why mm -hmm. is there no, uh, they have tails. Why are there no spikes back there? Right. Well, they determined that these are the necessary factors uh, that you need in place for weaponized tails to emerge. Okay. First of all, they said you need to be at least 200 pounds or 100 kilograms in weight. Okay. And next, you need to be armored and boast a thoracic stiffness uh, enough to swing the tail and counteract the swing force. So oh, no windmilling, you know. The right. stegosaurus is not going to just spin in circles. It needs to be able to move it around back and forth or, uh, or at least to strike and recoil. Right, you can't have like a you know a ten foot long arm to hit somebody with, right? Because it throw you wouldn't be able to control it. Right. Yeah, you need like a base of operations there, yeah. right? And then finally, you need to be an herbivore. And the reality is that large armored herbivores are rare, and additional head or tail ornamentation is generally an energy expenditure beyond what natural selection will support. Mm -hmm. uh, so they describe the, the tails of beasts uh, like the Stegosaurus as being kind of a, a perfect storm of traits. Yeah. So which makes them all the more special, you know, that you realize in this vast uh, history of, of varied uh, – of, organisms in varied uh, defensive forms, uh, the stegosaurians, uh, the glyphodonts, and ankylosaurus, they have something special going on. Totally. The stegosaurs are beautiful, fascinating creatures to study. But now that we've taken a look at them, by Crom, I think it's about time <laughs> to get back into the claim that somebody saw a living stegosaurus and carved it into a temple in Cambodia. So let's go to this claim. What's up with it? What's going on? Well, what should we do first, Joe? Should we talk about the carving itself or should we talk about the location of the carving? Well, let's set the scene first and then we'll talk about the carving. Okay. All right. Well, so the place is, uh, is a temple complex known as Ta Prom. Uh, this is the place where allegedly we find a carving 
of a Stegosaurus. So it's a temple in modern-day Cambodia. It's a relic of the Khmer Empire and located in its then capital of Angkor. Uh, now, the Khmer Empire lasted from uh, roughly the 9th to the 15th century CE, and it ruled the entire Mekong River Valley, uh, but then ultimately declined, as empires tend to do. Right. And there are a number of different attributed reasons. Uh, within, with, as with the fall of any empire, um, it's a complex thing, uh, but historians and anthropologists can't help but tease various uh, possibilities apart, right? Yeah. Uh, so one idea is that, you know, you simply had um, Thai conquests going on uh, that uh, that whittled them down. Or uh, one idea that's particularly engaging is the idea that widespread religious conversion uh, kind of destabilized things to some extent. Oh, do you know what the conversion from what to what would have been? It would have been Hinduism uh, to Buddhism, uh, particularly to uh, uh, Theravada Buddhism. Ah. Uh, and for instance, one idea here is that under Hinduism, uh, the rulers of uh, the Khmer Empire were divine kings or deva raja. Uh, but with the conversion to Theravada Buddhism, they became more mortal. Mm. But ultimately, there that are a can, lot of factors yeah. to consider here. Yeah, that can undercut your divine right, huh? Yeah, it takes me back a little to our, our episode on uh, on the divine rule of kings and, and what happens when, uh, when they've outlived their usefulness. Oh, yeah, r- uh, ritual regicide. Yeah, yeah. But ultimately, there are a number of factors to, to consider here, including uh, like maritime trade. I saw that come up in... Uh, in some papers, including a paper by anthropologist Miriam T. Stark, uh, who uh, also points out that Cambodia's ancient history is among the least known of, uh, of Southeast Asia. And this is uh, due to a number of factors, including civil war and just uh, an increasingly uh, colonial tradition mm-hmm. of, uh, of attempting to understand the history of another people. But as comparatively little as we might know about it, they certainly did leave behind some amazing and beautiful relics of the civilization. Oh yeah, without doubt. Now I I have I've never been to Cambodia, but but I have but but I want to because I've I've certainly I've seen images and I've heard uh, about the the famous temple complex of Angkor Wat. Yeah, you've this probably is, seen pictures of. This. Oh yeah, yeah. These these are beautiful to, be, to behold. Uh, it's the nation's most popular tourist destination. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, as is Ta Prom. Now, these uh, these temple complexes, they would have been Hindu, te- Hindu temples originally, and they gradually became more Buddhist in function mm-hmm. as this massive conversion took place uh, within the Khmer Empire. When was Ta Prom built? So this would have been built in 1186 by King uh, Jayavarman VII, and uh, sadly, I have to say, it's also known today as the Tomb Raider Temple. Oh, no. Because it was used as a location for the 2001 film Tomb Raider. The 2001 film. Wait, which one? This was that the original one the with original, Angelina Jolie? The original Angelina Jolie. Saw it in the theater. Don't remember anything about it. I, I looked back at the the IMDb list for it, and it has like a, like a number of, of famous uh, actors in it. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Isn't John Voight in it? Is that right? God, was he? I don't know. I don't know about John Voight, but because um, he's, I mean, he's Angela, you know, Angelina Jolie's father, uh, so maybe he was in it. But uh, uh, Daniel Craig was in it, I believe. No way. Yeah, pre-James Bond. Oh, I just looked it up. You know who it has in it? Who? It's got Ian Glenn, the guy who plays Jorah Mormont on Game of Thrones. Oh yeah, and it. I believe it also has uh, what's his name, Noah. Taylor? Noah Taylor, yes. He was yep. another actor who was on Game of Thrones and has been in a number of other uh, interesting films over the years. And it all goes back to Tomb Raider. Thank you, Tomb Raider. All right, let's not turn this into Tomb Raider to blow your mind. Uh, so the, the temple. Yes, yes. So um, th- I found a, a nice write-up uh, on Lonely Planet about uh, Top Rom. I just want to read one paragraph from it that I, nicely sets the stage. Quote, Top Rom is a temple of towers, closed courtyards, and narrow corridors. Many of the corridors are impassable, clogged with jumbled piles of delicately carved stone blocks dislodged by the roots of long-decayed trees. Bas-reliefs on bulging walls are carpeted with lichen, moss, and creeping plants, and shrubs sprout from the roofs of monumental porches. Trees hundreds of years old tower overhead, their leaves filtering the sunlight and casting a greenish pall over the whole scene. Well, that's beautifully described. Yeah. It makes me want to go there. But I'm also, I'm susceptible to this kind of 
setting anyway, and I think a lot of people are, right? Like it, it keeps showing up in our adventure movies mm-hmm. and uh, video games and all that. I wonder why we so love the image of the overgrown jungle temple with crumbling ancient stone archways being consumed by tree roots and vines. It's it's a singularly beautiful kind of image and setting for some reason. Well, I, I can't help but think there are a number of different things going on. So my, the the more pessimistic uh, side of me tends to think that part of it is kind of like a, a, a colonial, um, like pulp-saturated notion of the like the noble Westerner walking among the ruins of fallen ancient cultures. Well, you could maybe see something like that, but I think it's equally true of ruins no matter what culture they're from, right? I yeah. I mean, you can imagine it's equally true of old cathedral ruins in Western Europe. Yeah, or just old supermarket ruins here in the States. Like yeah. anywhere I go that I see some sort of ruins, uh, you know, be they ancient or fairly recent, they're fascinating. I want to walk inside them and see what's there and or what's living inside. It's specifically the idea of the plant overgrowth of like, a sacred stone building. Yeah. You know, the, that's like the, the main elements that are featuring in, in my picture of this in the mind. Uh, it, I guess maybe it's just something about like may, maybe it indicates the folly of human projects. I don't know. Yeah, well, there is kind of like a memento mori aspect to it, right? This this sort of Ozymandias effect that no matter mm-hmm. how great the, the structure is, it is going to fall with time. Nature is going to uh, going going to flow over it and take it back. Yeah. Uh, and there's something like, beautiful and haunting and poignant about all of that. Yeah. It's uh, like watching human built structures become a part of the forest. Yeah. But then also, I mean, we're I, I am fascinated by by other cultures, uh, and and many of them are ancient cultures. And therefore, to visit a site like this, or even just look at at photographs of it, it's kind of like going back in time. But how far back in time? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Okay, well, there's not really a question about when the temple is from. It seems, you know, it's less than a thousand years old, right? Right. So it, it le- being less than a thousand years old, I think it's about 800 years old or so. What is the argument that someone has carved a stegosaurus into the temple as a decorative motif? And I'll remind everybody here that you can see the image we're talking about at StuffToBlowYourMind.com on the landing page for this episode. It's going to be the the central image Mm -hmm. for the episode, uh, the carving of the supposed Stegosaurus. Right. So there's a building. It's got a pillar or sort of like a pillar against a wall. And there are carvings all up and down the vertical length of the pillar where there are sort of like these uh, these abstract uh, lines snaking around framing obviously representative carvings that are supposed to be animals and mythological beasts. Yes. And one of these, when you look at it, it's kind of uh – it's inside of a, of a circle or at least a, a curved uh, decorative uh, flourish here. And it appears to be a quadruped. It has a long tail. And it has one, two, three, four, five. Five or six, I think. Yeah, maybe six perhaps bony plates on its back. Yeah. It kind of looks like a stegosaurian. And you could even go as far to say that, yeah, it looks like it could be one of the, I think, three varieties of stegosaurians that uh, have been found in modern China. Uh-huh. So, you know, you don't even have to say, well, how did they get over from North America? Well, there were there are fossil remains of stegosaurians from uh, generally that part of Asia. Though I would also add that it feels a bit silly to attempt to match up a supposed dinosaur that would have evolved from these forms across 150 million years or so. Uh, but, but still, we have to, you have to admit, when you look at it, you can say, well, that kind of looks like a stegosaurus. I don't buy it for a second, but I, I have to admit that looking at it and imagining it as a stegosaurus is kind of intriguing. So I was trying to understand the argument that this is a stegosaurus. I found an article on a creationist website called Answers in Genesis. Uh, yeah, this is a, you got, you got to keep an eye out for this one because actually when you start Googling uh, like evolutionary science topics, somehow this website very often tends to make it near the top of Google results. Oh, yeah. It, like it'll pop up. You're, you're, maybe you're searching, should I mouthwash before I brush my teeth or afterwards? <laughs> and then answers, you're, you're getting an answer and like, oh, it's Answers in Genesis. Maybe I shouldn't trust this. Yeah, they've got some good SEO game going, <laughs> whatever it is. So they, they get up in those Google results. But uh, yeah, this is a young earth creationist website that is going to peddle a whole lot of pseudoscience about geology and paleontology. And they've got an 
an article attributed to a writer named Kenneth Cole, MD, uh, that is defending the idea that this is evidence of a, a young Earth, like uh, a recent creation and humans and dinosaurs living at the same time. So Cole writes, quote, There are no mythological figures among the roundels, so one can reasonably conclude that these figures depict the animals that were commonly seen by the ancient Khmer people in the 12th century. That means that only a little over 800 years ago, some dinosaurs were likely still living in that region of Cambodia. Of course, this is no surprise to biblical creationists because we know from Genesis 1 that land animals such as dinosaurs and humans were living together in the beginning and that representatives of the land animals, e.g. dinosaurs, were saved on the ark to repopulate the earth after the flood only 4,300 years ago. No, I don't want to give in to uh, excessive, unnecessary mockery, but I, I think this is not a tenable position. And we can explore some of the reasons for that when we come back from a break. All right, we're back. So, Joe, you just read this, uh, this passage from this young earth creationist about Noah Noah's Ark and uh, the, the Stegosaurians aboard the vessel. Yeah, I, I would say that this actually represents one way you could take – if you're going to go with the line that this carving in this Cambodian temple is actually a depiction of a Stegosaurus, th there are a couple ways you could go with it. Mm -hmm. uh, but you got to start with the idea that there's an obvious problem here. The carving is less than a 1,000 years old. We mentioned earlier that all non-avian dinosaurs went extinct 66 million years ago or before that. Well, for the Stegosaurus, the problem is even worse because it's one of those that went extinct long before the KPG extinction event took place. The Stegosaurus genus apparently went extinct during the late Jurassic period, roughly 150 million years ago. And by the time of the KPG extinction, Stegosaurus had already been extinct for almost 100 million years. So a way of putting this I've seen quoted before is that more time separates the Stegosaurus from the Tyrannosaurus rex than separates the Tyrannosaurus rex from us. Wow. So we're talking just vast lengths of time that are – that are, that are almost incomprehensible for us uh, meager humans. Right. Now, if you want to say it wasn't a stegosaurus, but it was a related stegosaurian, right, mm -hmm. some other type of related Ornithischian herbivore with, uh, with plates on its back of some kind from the group Stegosauria, that may have existed a little bit later, maybe into the earlier, maybe middle Cretaceous. But even those probably didn't make it to the KPG event, which in any case wiped out all of the dinosaurs except the ones that became modern-day birds. So if you want to believe that it really is a live stegosaurus that somebody saw being depicted in the carving, uh, and that the carving of, is original, of course, there's another idea that, of course, well, what if it's a more recent hoax or something, mm -hmm. then I think there are really two main ways people could go. You could either say some stegosaurs managed to survive about 150 mil million years longer than we thought without leaving any fossil evidence in the meantime. And we can call the believers of this hypothesis the cryptid camp, right? This is the standard cryptozoology kind of thing. There's some isolated population of an otherwise unknown creature. Right. Yeah. That we don't we, – we haven't explored uh, every nook and cranny of the earth and it's in those nooks and crannies that we might find – uh, fabulous or henceforth uh, uh, unrecognized species. Mm -hmm. The other one is what we heard from Kenneth Cole, MD, which is the, the entire timeline of Earth history is wrong. The Earth is actually less than 10,000 years old and dinosaurs existed alongside most of human civilization throughout history. We can call this the young Earth creationist camp. And I have theological problems with that because I think God would have destroyed all the crooked hot dog brain dinosaurs <laughs> with the flood and then they would not have been uh, permitted to board the ark. But that's, uh, that, that's my tangent. Le leave your theology aside, <laughs> Robert. I won't hear of it. Uh, so I, I think we can say probably neither of these is plausible at all. But the creationist hypothesis actually has more problems going for it than the cryptid hypothesis. Yeah, the cryptid hypothesis at least does not require us to bend and break time. Yeah. Before we get into those, I would say we don't really need to debate the visual qualities of the image because even if it looked exactly like a stegosaurus, this would not be a reason to think that humans and dinosaurs existed at the same time. But 
I, I must point out it does not look exactly like a stegosaurus. I mean, if you look at it, you might say, oh, that's a stegosaurus because you'd recognize the plates, right? Mm-hmm. Stegosaurus had a very small cranium with no known adornments. And this creature in the carving has a huge head with the appearance of some kind of pointed ear or horn on its face. I don't know exactly what it's supposed to be, but there's a thing on the face and the head is very large. Right. Stegosaurus also has a huge tail with spikes, and this carving has a pretty small tail with no spikes. So to be clear, what I'm saying is that nothing about it looks like a stegosaurus except that it has four legs and appears to have these lumps positioned over its back. And these lumps, by the way, might not even be parts of the animal. They, there's a strong argument that these are perhaps supposed to be leaves or some other vegetative uh, detail in the background. Oh, yeah, that's true. I mean, if you look at some of the same carvings from this area of the temple, other animals are depicted with sort of like shapes in the background that I think are just sort of like supposed to be background foliage or something. Mm-hmm. Now, here's another problem that, that I have with it. If a stegosaurus or some stegosaurian creature were to have survived to the point where humans either saw it or just remembered it, they just had like an oral history of the stegosaurians mm-hmm. and it made their way, made their made its way into their art. Why would this be the lone example of it? Oh yeah. Why would there not be stegosaurians everywhere? Right. Where are all the other ones? Exactly. And then also, if you're going to look at fantastic creatures in art from that region. Then what about the naga, the uh, the seven-headed serpent that you see in various uh, uh, Southeast Asian traditions? Right. I mean, so you're saying like why why don't we assume that maybe that's based on a real animal they saw too? Yeah, you, I think you're they're really cherry picking a particular beast or fantastic beast and then saying it is real when they're uh, if you're going to let that one through the gates, then you have to let the naga. You have to let every fantastic creature from uh, from Hindu and Buddhist traditions in through the gates as well. It's only fair. Let them on the ark too. Well, that's a good point. I think a supporter could say the it's a stegosaurus argument. Uh, it, it, well, the, it's got going for it that a stegosaurus did exist at some point, mm-hmm. and we don't have evidence that the Naga ever existed. But we don't have evidence that the Naga ever existed because, the, what, nobody's ever said they saw one and there's no fossil evidence. With the stegosaurus, nobody's ever said that they've seen one in any kind of credible way. And there's no fossil evidence since 150 million mm-hmm. years ago or whenever the particular genus you're talking about went extinct. Right. So within the period of the past dozens of millions of years, actually the evidential issue is the same for the Naga and the stegosaurus. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, there, there's, we have no doubt that there were sightings of, of course, boars uh, and the, the Javan rhino, which uh, we discussed in depth in our rhino horn episode. The Javan rhino is, a, is it, at least if you're used to just seeing uh, the African varieties of rhino, it is a weird-looking rhino. Yeah. And uh, it, it looks a lot like the creature in this carving. Well, yeah, the creature in the carving, it's got something strange going on in its face that looks like it could be an ear or a horn or something. Yeah. Uh, And I'm inclined to think that, yeah, that could be some kind of rhino horn. Yeah. So, and and these, again, are real beasts. It just, it's just that there are far fewer leaps and bounds one has to make in logic to get there. And even if you were to ignore all the stuff we're saying, this would only go to support the cryptid argument that somehow this small population of stegosaurs or related stegosaurids managed to survive undetected until at least 800 years ago or so, leaving no other traces that we've ever found. If I'm being generous, the cryptid argument seems at best physically possible, but just really implausible. Like, I don't see any good reason to prefer it over a handful of rival explanations you could come up with, which include, for example, the carving is supposed to be a boar or a rhino, like we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Maybe the carving is a mythological beast of the imagination that has a superficial resemblance to something with back plates. And if you just look on the pillar in the temple, if you look just like two spaces down, there's another crazy-looking mythological beast that's pretty cool and it's got all kinds of features that you don't see in nature. Yeah, this looks like some sort of a, a like a cross between the Lorax and the uh, and and the uh, the monsters from Where the Wild Things Are. Well, it sort of it sort of looks like a yeah, it's like a fawn, but it's wearing like a, a magistrate's wig. Mm-hmm. And nobody's making the argument that this was a real creature. That I have seen. No, but give them time. (laughs) Uh, So another possibility, I I don't know that there's any evidence to support this, but then again, it's probably more plausible than a cryptid thing is that the carving is a more recent forgery. I'm not advocating that, but of course it's possible. 
Yeah, I, I think I did see it brought up, the, the idea that, oh, what if a film crew did it? Western yeah. film crew comes in and maybe they fake a stegosaurus on ancient ruins, which which seems like that would be an extreme and a reckless thing for anyone to do. So yeah. I don't know how much, uh, how, mu- how much uh, credence I give to that idea personally. Uh, I, I don't see any evidence for it at all except to say that it would be a less extravagant thing yes. to resort to than saying that stegosauruses survived an extra 100 million years. Mm-hmm. Or, and we, we haven't even mentioned this yet, Geomythology. Like, if you haven't heard our episode, The Mystery of the Myth-Fleshed Fossil, we discuss the work of the Stanford historian Adrian Mayer, who has written books documenting many possible cases where ancient art, mythology, folk beliefs could have been inspired by ancient peoples coming across confusing geofacts like fossils of dinosaurs and other amazing extinct animals. So you find a dinosaur fossil. You're in the ancient world. It looks like nothing you've ever seen alive today. So maybe it's some sort of monster. It's a griffin. It's a dragon. It's mm-hmm. a cyclops and so forth. And so some ancient stegosaurians, not the stegosaurus itself, but related backplated uh, ornithischian herbivores, did live in this area around China, as you've pointed out. Right, yeah, at least three different uh, stegosaurians. So there's no way to rule out that this kind of carving could also have been inspired by somebody finding a mysterious stegosaurian fossil skeleton with backplates, passing that morphology on through art and folklore, and it ending up getting carved into a temple wall. Yeah, I mean, especially if you're digging up a lot of stone to build a giant temple complex. Oh, yeah. Now, we don't know which which of these is correct, but any of them seem more plausible than huge land-dwelling dinosaurs surviving millions of years after we have any fossil records of them. So I think the cryptid approach kind of falls apart. Yes. Plus, I have to think that if dinosaurs were around during the Roman Empire, they would have wound up in the Colosseum. There would have been, <laughs> there would have been a Stegosaurus in the Colosseum battling a gladiator. Well, I mean, yeah, but you go back into the age of emperors and kings and all that. I mean, they, they really did love to get some exotic animals into their into their menagerie yeah. and, and trot them around for people to see, right? Yeah, there are countless tales. We could, we could do a whole episode on examples of exotic creatures that were uh, transported across continents so that uh, royal individuals could look at them and, you know, maybe have them fight another beast. Now, that's all the cryptid approach. I think, unfortunately, the argument gets a lot worse if you try to take the young earth approach because the idea that the humans saw stegosaurs because dinosaurs actually existed alongside humans for much of history and that history is less than 10,000 years long, I have to say I – you know, sometimes I think people in the skeptic community have too much fun harping on the wrongness of stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Like it can – yeah, there are lots of people who have deeply untenable views like the idea of a young earth, but it can feel excessive and unnecessary to just like keep harping on how wrong that is. But at the same time, I do feel a kind of sadness about all of the energy that goes into defending views like that because it, it's similar to like the energy that would go into defending a flat earth approach. It's something that is not just disagreeing with the majority of scientists about a fact here or a fact there, but it's sort of undermining the integrity of the entire scientific enterprise. If you take a position like flat earth or like young earth, you are forced by extension to essentially deny everything. Yeah. I mean, one way that I think about it is I I will sadly never see a living stegosaurus. Yeah. But at the same time, the stegosaurus was real, and yeah. that is a, that is fascinating, and it's amazing, and it 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 fills me with with wonder and awe to 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 research the creature and read about it and see these artistic depictions of it. Likewise, I will never see a unicorn, and unicorns never existed, and yet the unicorn images of the unicorn are beautiful. And when you start re- reading about the the, the complex uh, symbolism of the unicorn, that that is beautiful, and it can bring meaning to your life. And uh, it's it's no there, there's no need to start bending. Re- your reality and bending your your understanding of the world so that you can make it somehow more real than it is, yeah. as if the idea of it and the potency of the idea is not real. Exactly. I mean, is is it really worth believing in the physical existence of a unicorn to make you essentially forced to undermine the foundations of astronomy, cosmology, astrophysics, geology, radiochemistry, biology, paleontology, genetics. I mean, all of these fields are 
are based on predictions and consistently produce results that are in agreement, basically, with, with a picture of an old Earth and an old universe. And all of these fields not only have successful predictive theories corroborating the old universe, the old Earth, hundreds of millions of years of animal evolution, but they independently produce new results and overturn old misconceptions that keep further resolving the clarity of that picture rather than undermining it. And of course, you know, as we all know, some of these fields use that picture of the world to produce technologies that even Cambodian stegosaur advocates use in their daily lives. Yeah, you end up just having to do so much uh, mental gymnastics to make it work. And you know who didn't have time for mental gymnastics? Stegosaurus. (laughs) The stegosaurus was a plain dealer. Yeah, yeah. If it's green, eat it. If it tries to bite you, stab it in the groin with a thagomizer. Yeah, (laughs) thagomize it good by Crom. (laughs) All right. Well, there you there you go. Uh, hopefully this episode, A, I mean, it provided us an excuse to just talk about the Stegosaurus for quite a while. And we got to discuss uh, some of these other issues uh, related to uh, cryptozoology, uh, uh, young earth creationism, and, um, and just a little bit of Cambodian history. Again, you can find the key images that we're talking about here at StuffToBlowYourMind.com on the landing page for this episode. You'll also find blog posts and links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us, to let us know feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, to just say hi, let us know who you are and why you like the show, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.